Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian Podcast. This one entitled, Selected History of Presidential Election Losers. The date, November of 2020, and my name is Bell Avis. In an essay for the History News Network entitled, quote, John Adams knew when to go home, unquote, Political science professor R.B. Bernstein writes, quote, In 1801, John Adams did something just as momentous, just as reaffirming of democratic constitutional principle. After losing the presidential election of 1800 to his former friend and political rival Thomas Jefferson, Adams decided that losing an election, even one for the presidency, means what it says. Adams went home, unquote. And though the election of 1800 was just the fourth time the American people went to the polls to elect the president, this one was different. The two leading candidates, Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson, had the same number of electoral votes, meaning that the House of Representatives ultimately decided that election. Adams, after a bitterly fought campaign, came in third. Quote, nor did he listen to hints by fellow members of this Federalist Party that he let them keep him in office as a caretaker president while the House of Representatives wrestled with resolving the electoral deadlock between Jefferson and Aaron Burr, unquote, adds Bernstein. So what happened to Adams after his time in the White House? In fact, the first to occupy that structure because Washington actually held his presidency in New York. Bernstein writes, quote, he never left Quincy again, Quincy being his Massachusetts home. For 25 years, he read, wrote, argued, reflected, and philosophized about politics, government, history, religion, and his life and career. He also carried on a bitter quarrel in print with a foe long dead, yes, Alexander Hamilton. He entertained himself by exchanging dozens of letters with such old friends such as Benjamin Rush and Benjamin Waterhouse, and actually revived an old friendship by exchanging more letters with Thomas Jefferson. Unquote. In some regards, Adams' best presidential decision was the one at the end of his presidency. If Washington set the standard for the peaceful transition of power and established the precedent for a limited presidency, two terms, Adams' seating of power in 1800 was equally important. Washington chose not to run again, but even in that choice, did so with the knowledge that had he run for a third term, he probably would have won. John Adams was not just the second president of the United States, he was the first defeated in a re-election. How Adams managed the transition of power provided an essential precedent for future presidents. It is one thing to cede power after two terms. Jefferson, Jackson, and even Barack Obama all did that. It is quite another to cede control after a single term, after a stinging defeat. Now contrast Adams' behavior with that of his contemporary, and due to a certain musical from Lin-Manuel Miranda, the now famous Aaron Burr. After serving as Jefferson's vice president, Burr realized that Jefferson would run again in 1804, but would not feature Burr as his running mate. Burr then conducted an unsuccessful run for New York governor. Whatever his plans after this loss, his plans died along with Alexander Hamilton on the famous plain of Weehawken, New Jersey. 
In 2020, politics can seem highly vitriolic with cries of divisiveness and polarization clogging the airwaves and dominating Twitter sphere. But what happened on that plane in Weehawken, New Jersey would be the equivalent of Mike Pence gunning down Obama-era Secretary of the Treasury, Jack Lew. After killing Hamilton, Burr engaged in a series of misadventures, resulting in a treason trial. He fled the United States, returned, got married at 77, and died in relative peace back in his native New York. Some presidents chose not to run because they were not interested in a second term, as was the case with Chester A. Arthur and James K. Polk. Others know the outcome, so do not even try, as was the situation with John Tyler, James Buchanan, and Andrew Johnson. But most of those who serve one term usually run again, and in the history of the presidency, nine of them, including Adams, ended on the losing side. Because of the power of the Virginia dynasty, elections after 1800 consisted of names that only a real history geek would love. This list includes Charles Pinckney and Rufus King. It is doubtful that the talented Manuel Miranda will be featuring a lavish Broadway musical called Pinckney anytime soon. DeWitt Clinton was the loser in 1812 to James Madison, yet his fame is ensured through his efforts as governor of New York to drive the Erie Canal construction. This accomplishment greatly impacted the region's entire economy and helped New York cement its status as the Union's first city. Clinton's historical impact is far more relevant for this than as a name in Madison's biography. In 1820, the dynasty and its standard bearer of that year, James Monroe, ran unopposed and received, are you ready for this number, 76% of the popular vote. This election was the first time and the last time this has happened in 58 presidential elections. And 200 years after Monroe and his era of good feelings, that situation seems increasingly anachronistic. During his early years in the Republic, Andrew Jackson made so much history, good, bad, and heinous, that it is challenging to pick which issue to focus on. But fortunately, this piece guides us to the election of 1824. In that year, John Quincy Adams defeated Andrew Jackson for the presidency, but Adams, like his father, was fated to only serve a single term. The election of 1824 was highly controversial. The term corrupt bargain has actually stuck to it, and hence Adams served out this single term with sort of a taint of foulness, of almost illegitimacy to it, or Jackson and his supporters would attest. This meant that in 1828, the popular Jackson, who had already won a plurality of votes in 1824, won the White House outright, meaning that Adams, like his father, only served a single term. But unlike his father, Keensey Adams went on to a prominent career in the House of Representatives. As Margaret Hogan, writing for the Miller Center, notes, quote, Adams served nine post-presidential terms in Congress from 1830 until his passing in 1848, usually voting in the minority. He supported the Bank of the United States rechartering, opposed the annexation of Texas and the war with Mexico, and struggled for eight years to end the House's notorious, quote, gag rule, unquote, which tabled without debate any petition critical of slavery. 
Adams attempted to read into the record at every opportunity the hundreds of anti-slavery petitions that abolitionists around the country sent him regularly. The House finally relented and repealed the rule in 1854. Adams' career is one of the many examples that puts paid to the conjecture of individual progressive writers of this day that whites were somehow tolerant or even compliant about slavery. It also should be noted that neither Adams nor his father attended their successors' inaugurations. Martin Van Buren became president in 1836 upon the success of the democratic machine he had built and the popularity of his predecessor and patron, Andrew Jackson. But like many one-term presidents, he also inherited an economic debacle. In 1992, political operative James Carville famously intoned that, quote, it's the economy, stupid, unquote. In this pithy phrase lies the kernel of wisdom and presidential success. It is not a coincidence that Martin Van Buren, Herbert Hoover, and George H.W. Bush all had either a recession or depression occurring on their watch that affected their electoral chances and made them one-term presidents. After his defeat in the 1940 election, Van Buren remained active in politics but took on an increasingly anti-slavery position, similar to John Quincy Adams. An interesting policy, given his patron was a slaveholder. In 1848, Van Buren became the rare presidential loser who tried to run again, but in this case, not the Democratic Party he had built, but instead running for the Free Soil Party, whose central plank was abolition. A canny veteran of politics, Van Buren probably knew he had no chance, but was instead making a political statement about slavery. As it happened, the Free Soil Party garnered over 10% of the popular vote, but lost eventually to Whig Zachary Taylor, as did Lewis Cass, the Democratic candidate. Cass was the first harbinger of the decline of the dominance of the Democratic Party. Not only was he running against a former Democrat, representing what would soon become a split within the party, but he was the first non-incumbent Democrat to lose and the first who did not succeed another Democrat. Cass later went on to a Senate seat and in 1857, at age 75, Secretary of State. Between Jackson, who won a second term in 1832, and Abraham Lincoln, who won his second term in 1864, no president would win a second term outright. Some of them had the misfortune to, well, to die in office, such as William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor. Others, such as James Polk, who might have won a second term, chose not to run again. Since Polk passed away shortly after leaving office, it was probably best that he did. That leaves a who's who of one-termers, including Martin Van Buren, Franklin Pierce, and James Buchanan. In the latter case, his popularity was at such low ebb that he declined to even try for a second term. John Tyler was one of those presidents whose popularity was such that a run was out of the question for a term in his own right. Because William Henry Harrison died so early in his presidency, the first such succession in American history, Tyler served nearly a full term. His post-presidency, however, did not cover him in glory as he later became a congressman in the Confederate legislature during the Civil War. Andrew Johnson experienced one of the most tumultuous presidencies in the Republic's history, overseeing a pro-South version of Reconstruction, 
getting impeached and nearly convicted, and failing to secure his party's nomination in 1868. After his presidency, he returned to his native Tennessee. Once a pariah in that state due to his pro-union stance, his position on Reconstruction was such that white Tennesseans saw him as, well, kind of a hero. And in 1875, he became the only former president elected to the Senate. U.S. Grant was unique as one of the few presidents never to have served in an elected office before his election. Other members of that group include William Taft, Herbert Hoover, Dwight Eisenhower, and Donald Trump. In an era where close elections would become the norm, Grant won both his elections easily, besting Horatio Seymour and Horace Greeley. Seymour never ran for office after his loss. Grover Cleveland was a great president. He reversed many of the destructive policies of the Harrison administration. He was pro-business, pro-gold standard, anti-tariff, and anti-trust busting. One of my favorite political sayings of all the presidents comes from him. Quote, though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. Unquote. In response to the Panic of 1893, his hands-off attitude meant that the subsequent depression was over in about three years, definitely by the time of the election of 1896 of William McKinley. FDR's differentiated response with massive government intervention meant that the Great Depression was not over after eight years of the New Deal, and even then, World War II had to bail out the nation. Unfortunately, Cleveland is not remembered for any of this. Instead, he is remembered, if at all, as the only presidential loser to run again and win a second term. There have been many economic recessions and even depressions in our history. It was one such calamity that did in Martin Van Buren's re-election. Had Cleveland not already served his first term, it would have been difficult to see him winning an election after the Panic of 1893, despite all of his eminent qualifications. George H.W. Bush had a presidential approval rating of nearly 90% after the first Gulf War. This was so high, in fact, prominent Democrats of the era, such as Mario Cuomo, to 1996 for their chances. Little did they know that a brief economic recession would so impact the election of 1992 that H.W. Bush would become a one-term president and that a little-known governor of Arkansas would take the Oval Office. Of all the presidential losers, arguably none had a greater post-presidency than William Taft. The salient personality of Taft's presidential elections was the borderline narcissist Theodore Roosevelt, who cast a shadow over this entire era. T.R. was one of those presidents, such as Washington, Jackson, and Ronald Reagan, who were so popular they could nearly designate their successor. The problem is that all of these successors ended as one-term presidents. Now, indeed, there were circumstances around these defeats. Van Buren had the Panic of 1837 under his watch, and Taft faced a split party. But part of the problem with these presidents is they were not their predecessors. In 1988, Republicans elected a third Reagan term, but the president was not Ronald Reagan. It was George H.W. Bush. T.R.'s, Teddy's, backing was instrumental in Taft's 1908 win. Unfortunately, Roosevelt was also the architect for his loss. 
Such was the power of the Republican coalition after the elections of 1894 and 1896 that they could essentially win pretty much any election. Well, until the Great Depression, that is. The exception was 1912, when the egomaniacal Roosevelt broke the Washingtonian precedent and ran for a third term. This entry split the Republican vote and ushered Woodrow Wilson into office as one of the worst presidents in our history. Though embittered by the loss, Taft did not run for office again, instead accepting a teaching post at Yale and giving paid speeches. Yet in 1921, President Warren G. Harding nominated Taft to the Supreme Court for the role of Chief Justice, and the Senate confirmed Taft by a vote of 61 to 4. United States Supreme Court Chief Justice was the role that Taft coveted even more than the presidency. In an article entitled, Chief Justice, Not President, Was William Howard Taft's Dream Job, writer Eric Tricky notes, quote, William Howard Taft never really wanted to be president. Politics was his wife's ambition for him, but not his own. Before he was Secretary of War or Governor of the Philippines, Taft, an intellectual son and grandson of judges, spent eight blissful years as a federal appeals court judge. I love judges and I love courts, President Taft said in his speech in 1911. They are my ideals that typify on earth what we shall meet hereafter in heaven under a just God, unquote. Tricky adds, as Chief Justice, Taft rejoiced in his reversal of fortune. On the bench, wrote journalist William Allen White, he resembled one of the high gods of the world, a smiling Buddha, placid, wise, gentle, sweet, unquote. To manage his declining health and reduce his famous girth, Taft walked three miles to work at the Supreme Court's chamber in the U.S. Capitol building, and soon he was down to 260 pounds, a near low for him. He rarely looked back at his years as a politician, except to bid them good riddance. Because many presidents and party nominees have received their opportunities into their middle years, post-presidential life is often measured in years, but not decades. There are two 20th century exceptions to this, Herbert Hoover and Jimmy Carter. Herbert Hoover is an interesting case. For nearly 20 years prior to his defeat in 1932 to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he had strode the world stage with success after success after success. Everything from famine relief in World War I to a successful stint as Commerce Secretary under Calvin Coolidge to a pretty strong win in 1928 in that election. Then on that fateful day in 1929 with the stock market collapse and the subsequent inception of the Great Depression, it all came crashing down. Of Hoover, historian Daniel Hamilton writes, quote, Still a relatively youthful man upon his defeat in 1932, the 58-year-old former president lived another 32 years, before his death on October 20th, 1964. Immediately, after the inauguration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Herbert Hoover retreated to his home in Palo Alto, California. For much of the 1930s, and indeed for decades to come, the public, and especially the Democratic Party, blamed Hoover for the Great Depression. Likewise, few Republicans in the 1930s wanted Hoover involved in party politics because of his negative standing in the popular mind. 
Wealthy and generous, Hoover did not need to work, but even the fishing that he loved could consume only so much of the hours of the week. From his home in Palo Alto, Hoover launched a series of bitter attacks on the New Deal in letters and essays, unquote. Hoover also spent many of those years getting foreign policy wrong. Though no fan of Hitler, he opposed America entry into World War II. He opposed the use of the atom bomb with Japan and opposed the Cold War. And for the most part, he did spend his time being a good ambassador of Republican presidents. But again, because of his association with the Great Depression, Hoover was always something of a pariah. It has now been 40 years as of this date in November of 2020 since James E. Carter lost his re-election bid in 1980. His opponent in that race and both vice presidential nominees have all passed away. Unlike many presidents, after their term officially ended, Carter has kept his profile relatively high, working through his Carter Center and, in 2002, garnering a Nobel Peace Prize. As Carl Cannon has noted, writing for Real Clear Politics, quote, Ostensibly, Carter's 2002 award was given for his decades of untiring effort to find peaceful solutions to international conflicts, to advance democracy and human rights, and to promote economic and social development. Few would quarrel with that description, and if one were to consider only the Carter Center's work to eradicate a disease known as river blindness, Jimmy Carter would have been a deserving recipient, unquote. Of course, the Nobel Committee being what it is, politics is never far from the surface of human affairs, and in 2002, Norwegian Nobel Committee Chairman Gunnar Berg sullied Carter's award by blurting out in an interview that it, quote, should be interpreted as a kick in the leg to George W. Bush, unquote. Many thought Carter should have shared the award much earlier for his work on the 1978 Camp David Accords. So really, the 2002 award was more of a lifetime achievement and a belated acknowledgement of that success. Not as worthy has been Carter's virulence in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Quote, the bottom line is this, peace will come to Israel and the Middle East only when the Israeli government is willing to comply with international law, with the roadmap for peace, with official American policy, with the wishes of a majority of its citizens, and honor its previous commitments by accepting its legal borders. All Arab neighbors must pledge to honor Israel's right to live in peace under these conditions. Unquote. This is from an excerpt from Carter's book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. The title, provocative in itself, tells all one needs to know on Carter's stance. The Palestinian leadership, though, doesn't really want peace, for their legitimacy rests not on their ability to lead, but instead the power to fight Israel. That is lost on Carter. Carter lost the presidency for several reasons, but not the least of which because the job was too big for him. And at times, his post-presidency often shows the same lack of judgment and awareness. Now, if Carter's post-presidency was somewhat controversial, first stances as the one just discussed, George H.W. Bush was a model of what a post-president can accomplish. In addition to focusing on his library, the Miller Center states, quote, 
Bush also joined with former President Bill Clinton after a tsunami from the Indian Ocean struck Southeast Asia in December of 2004. The two former presidents created the Bush-Clinton-Houston Tsunami Fund, a national fundraising campaign to assist damaged communities throughout the region, unquote. This was to become one of four major projects that the two joined in for assistance to other nations. George W. Bush noted of his father, quote, he has two favorite 62-year-olds, myself and Bill Clinton, unquote. It has actually been a long time, almost 24 years now, since we have had a person who had served in the office of president and then had lost a second term. We had Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, who all successfully ran for re-election. But as of this writing, Joe Biden has won the presidential election of 2020. Despite all of the protestations of the Trump campaign, there just doesn't seem to be enough numbers to put him back over the top. I supported Trump in 2016. I supported him again in 2020, but not based on his personality, but rather his policies. And if you want to know those fundamental reasons, please look for another podcast entitled Nine Reasons to Vote for Donald Trump, a piece which I am leaving both up on the website and on my Buzzsprout podcast. Knowing the limitations of Trump's character, it is not easy to believe he will go gently into that good night, as Dylan Thomas might have said. As noted above, neither Adams attended their successors' inaugurations. John Kinsey did not see the advent of a Jacksonian presidency in the most favorable light. Quote, he wrote in his diary that the sun of my political life is now set in the deepest of gloom. Unquote. Filled with sadness for the nation, Adams stayed in Washington for a few months before returning to his hometown of Kinsey, Massachusetts. And obviously into history as a highly successful and highly regarded House of Representative member. It is impossible to know what to predict about Trump in a post-presidential world, but I think speeches, a radio show, and probably a possible TV program are all in the future. But the looming question for Republican presidential hopefuls running against President Harris in 2024, yeah, you heard that right, will be twofold. Number one, will Trump support their candidacies? This is the question that has to be roaming around the brains of everyone from Pence to Thune to Haley. And maybe, just maybe, will he do what only one other of the 46 presidents has done? Run again and win. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. And obviously, look for all of our other podcasts on www.conservativehistorian.com. And as we always know, we have essays, book reviews, columns, and always consider that if you want more of this, we can uh, sell you the Conservative Historian Collected Works. Thank you for listening. This is Bell Otis.